This is the Verissimus Real Estate Show for all things investing, agent, sales, marketing, lead generation. We'll give you all the tools you need to explode your business. We feature industry leaders in investing, agents, broker owners with large teams, attorneys, title companies, all of the above to give you the tools to explode your business. I'm your host, Dom Marshall at Connect with Dom across all social platforms. So find me on Spotify, Apple, Google, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, all of the above. Like, comment, and subscribe. Again, I'm Dom Marshall. Like, comment, and subscribe. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Okay, so we have Harry Marsh with Harry Marsh Law. I think you go by 24-hour title now in North Carolina. Harry is a real estate attorney based in North Carolina. He is the go-to attorney for all things creative financing, buying subject to, buying with little to no money down. And what I know for certain is you'll find very little information on this that we're about to share. If you've explored this before, you know what I'm saying. It's very difficult to find a good attorney that closes these transactions, but not just closes them, actually fully understands and comprehends them and is willing to share his time today to show you what's possible. So Harry closes hundreds, if not thousands of these transactions year over year. He's what I like to say, a grandmaster of these transactions. And what I mean by that is he knows our next three moves before we even make them. So there's been times I've called Harry, I've told him about the transaction. I'm like, this is what's going on. It's in forbearance, there's things going on. And within a split second, it'd be like a two minute phone call. Harry would be like, well, these are the pitfalls that you need to avoid. Maybe you should stay away from it. Or here's the benefits of why you should go down this path. So Harry can really guide you to go the right way with each transaction. So with that said, we're very fortunate to have Harry's time here. And before we get into your background, Harry, first question, which everyone is skeptical about, is it possible to buy houses with little to no money down? Definitely. We even get a couple of these, maybe one every three months where someone is paid to take over a loan on a house. Yeah, it's crazy. There's been a couple. I haven't done that. There's been a couple where I've actually been offered that. But the house was in such bad shape, we ended up walking away. But yeah, it happens. Um, so do you need credit credentials? Do you need to use financing with a bank? None of that matters. Doesn't matter. So what I'm hearing is, and the way I like to frame it, you're not limited to your finances. You're limited to your real estate financing and deal-making knowledge and abilities. Yeah, a lot of the... People that do subject to say that you don't really find subject to often you make subject to, you know, once you get into the real estate world and networking and finding these deals, you'll find opportunities where a real estate agent or other investors might have bought the property and sold it in the traditional manner. But once you understand subject to, you can create these subject to deals to happen. Yep. Yep. So we're going to dive into how to put a deal together and kind of the legalities and the paperwork behind it, the pitfalls you want to avoid, because that's that's there's a story that I'm going to tell later down the line about a guy that was doing tabletop closings for these, which is, from my background, a big no-no. You want to always use an attorney for these transactions, but we'll get into that later. Um, let's quickly list the strategies, then we'll get into your background. So we have subject two. What, what are the other potential strategies? Well, there's seller financing, subject to, and then every variation you can think of within those. You know, it's common for you to do subject to on a flip, for example, where you're agreeing to just do subject to for six months, and then you're telling the seller that you're going to sell the loan and pay it off. You know, you can put a timeline on yourself. Your restrictions or your different types of deals you can do are as limited as your mind is. You know, we've had some really crazy situations and different setups with investors. There are some more advanced investors right now that are buying subject twos, and then they're putting like a second mortgage on it, which represents seller financing. So let's say you take over a $180,000 loan on a $250,000 property, you owe 70 grand to the seller. 
So they'll put a second mortgage on it for that $70,000 and they'll be making mortgage payments to the seller going forward. So again, even though the seller has 70 grand in equity, they're getting a second on that and paying them that way. And then even make it more complicated, they're turning around and selling that note on the open market for you know cash. So they're, they're kind of making money uh, in a sense or letting someone else take over the loan for a discount or you know, whatever it may be. You can wrap a wrap. Basically, you can sell a subject to that you find to someone else, or you can sell the you know seller financing on it. There, there are so many different ways to do it. And once you get into your first subject too, you'll start mulling everything around in your head and you'll learn these other ways to, to do it. Yeah, it's crazy because my mind kind of exploded when I first had, I sold an energy company and then I took those funds and I wanted to get into real estate, kind of probably should have prepped for that transition. So I was looking on market, I was looking at the traditional 20% down, was in contract for four duplexes, so eight units in Florida, ended up hating going through the financing process. It was brutal. They wanted my blood. They wanted everything from me. Ultimately, I backed out of that transaction, started doing more research, came across a YouTube video with Harry and a few other investor guests talking about subject two and what we're getting into today. And my mind just exploded. Did the first transaction and then realized, what if I agree with the seller if I'm dealing directly with the seller and not going on market, but going off market direct to sellers? It's whatever we agree upon within the bounds of being legal, we can ultimately agree on anything, which has just exploded my mind when I heard that, which is why I asked that first question was, is it possible from an attorney perspective to buy little to no money down? And the answer is yes, it is. Yeah. Every year I teach a class for the local real estate investor group or the school. There's like 120 agents that go to that school every year to get their real estate license. And this is something they never teach any of them. You know, they don't teach that in real estate school because it's not the traditional easy kind of stuff where you're going to get easily paid a commission. But once I start explaining this and show them the subject to presentation and go through that, you can literally see their jaws drop halfway through yeah. where it hits them, you know, this entirely different world that they had no idea existed and it's entirely legal. Yeah, this is exactly why I wanted to get you on. So thanks for your time here is it's one thing seeing it from other investors and people talking about it and you're like, are they promoting a cost? Are they trying to sell me something? Is this real? We have an attorney on that does these transactions day in, day out in the thick of it, in the trenches. So um, with that said, we haven't got into your background, why you got into real estate and then what your business looks like today, like what service areas, et cetera. Uh, I started as a bankruptcy attorney, actually. Really? And, you know, bankruptcy teaches you debtor, creditor rights and everything. But it also shows you how much money sometimes people in real estate make. You know, it, it's easy to start doing short sales and debt negotiation and see that realtors sometimes are making the good money. So I was a bankruptcy attorney for about two years. I saw realtors making money and found out how poor traditional closing attorneys are and how they don't like to do the investor closings. And long story short, we transitioned everything away from bankruptcy and debt consolidation and all that kind of stuff into the real estate world. We've been doing it for about 10 years now. We do three or 400 closings a month. At least one of those a day probably is subject to sometimes two or three a day. Uh, so I've been doing it long enough as well that I've seen every possible headache or problem that you can have from a subject to. I've literally had sellers get hit by a bus the day before closing or the day after closing and any other kind of crazy situation you can think of from bankruptcy to a mad seller calling the bank and trying to get them to do, the, you know, do on sale clause. I've seen every type of creditor from Wells Fargo to your local bank to your neighbor. Uh, so I've been around long enough to see if litigation is going to happen from a possible problem, you know, what would result in that litigation. And then I've been able to kind of steer our subject to practice or you know, the closings for that to try to, you know, you can never eliminate risk in anything, but if there's a way to do things properly, I think we do them properly. Right. So at this point, all we do is real estate closings. We do do an occasional estate if, uh, if it's a client we like and it's, you know, subject to a closing, if we had to do the estate before we do that. And we actually just did bring on a bankruptcy, I mean, a foreclosure attorney as well. Yeah, hopefully that's not going to be a wave of the future, but if it is, we'll be prepared for it. 
So we've got five offices, four of them in Charlotte. We just opened an office in Wilmington, North Carolina. We, we can do anything North Carolina and South Carolina related though with mobile notaries and all that kind of stuff. Most of our practice is investor closings, which is what most attorneys do not want to deal with. We like them. Uh, I like them dealing with them a lot more than realtors often. So anything you can think of subject to SAR financing, uh, we do it. Yep. And for those listening that are investors that want to get into the space of investing that aren't physically located in North Carolina or South Carolina, all my closings, I have not been to Harry's office. I have still yet to been to Harry's office for a closing. I'm up in New York. So you can do this from any state. You could probably do it. I could probably do this from England. Yeah. We got a couple of Israel investors that love subject to. Yeah. So how would you suggest <clears throat> get into subject to, I guess, let's start off with what is, let's define it. And then how do you get into it? And then how do you become a master of subject to? Well, subject to I, what I'd like to tell people, some people don't realize that it's not just a mortgage you can do subject to. It can be subject to, to anything. Right. A lot of the times, you know, you find these properties that are sitting empty and you wonder why they're empty, a uh, zombie property or whatever. And a lot of the times it's a problem like there's an $800,000 IRS lien and the seller can't pay it. And it's valid for 10 more years. That seller moved back to New York and the property is setting empty because no one is clever enough to figure out how to do anything with it. Right. Subject two, you can actually buy and take over someone's mortgage, no cash. You can actually buy their problem pop property that has a judgment against it, same thing. In every state, judgments eventually expire. In North Carolina, South Carolina, it's 10 years. So I actually own a subject to myself where the guy had $150,000 IRS lien. Right. And he was basically going to be underwater $100,000 so he paid that. So it was sitting empty. He was just waiting on them to foreclose on him. I bought that. And four years later, the judgment expired. So I went from being $80,000 or $100,000 underwater to having $80,000 in equity. So uh, in addition to his subject to the mortgage. So that's let's circle back one second. An IRS lien for anyone listening and... I might get this wrong, Harry, so correct me if I'm wrong. It's 10 years, right? If yes. that if that leans there for 10 years, it expires and goes away. Correct. And do you have to do anything at that point or is it just done? No, when a title search attorney does their title search, basically 99% of the time, any judgment order than 10 years old is expired. So they just ignore it. So literally it's a, um, you know, a strategy for investors to find properties like that not only subject to for a mortgage, but subject to for other problems and you know, wait for that uh, judgment or lien to expire. That's where our knowledge and experience is valuable. There are sometimes judgments you don't wanna do that with because they can actually order the property sold or try to collect on them. I just happen to know after thousands of closings, the IRS never cares or you know, goes after anyone or does anything like that. So it'd be 99% you know, safe, I would say, to buy something like that. And uh, it's an advanced investor tactic, but it illustrates the point that subject to is basically taking over the obligation that someone has on a property. You're not taking it over personally, you're just agreeing to make the payments for them more or less, uh, or not make the payments if it's a judgment. But traditionally a mortgage, let's say a Wells Fargo mortgage or something, as long as you make the payments to Wells Fargo and they don't care who's making those payments, Wells Fargo is gonna be happy to accept your money. Uh, so in a typical closing to back up, there's a deed and a mortgage or a deed of trust in some states. In a subject to closing, the deed transfers over. The actual ownership of the property is transferred to you, the buyer. The mortgage or the deed of trust, though, we just leave alone. It stays in the previous owner's name. So for you as a buyer of a subject to, it's the best of both worlds. You own the property, but you don't own the debt. You don't owe the obligation on the debt. That stays in the old owner's name. So you have an asset and no liability. Uh, it's wonderful for you as an investor. And like you were talking about earlier in your investor world, if you had $100,000 in cash, let's say, traditionally you can go buy one or two properties by putting 20% down or whatever it may be. Well, subject to, you might be able to leverage that basically and buy 10 properties. You know, the, the sky is the limit. Um, right now, I think it's going to be an important time for people to start to understand this and do that. You know, for the last few years, we had traditionally low interest rates, two, three percent. Those are going to be hugely valuable mortgages in the future. 
you know, you hear people that they can't even sell their house because they lose money on that, you know, the interest rate they get right now. But for you as an investor, those properties might have been over leveraged. They were sold at a high price. They have really low interest rates on it. For you as an investor, cash flow could be amazing for those properties. Right. You know, their mortgage might be $800 a month and you might be able to cash flow and rent that for $2,500 a month. So as an investor, you're looking for properties that fit that general scheme where low out of money pocket, you know, cost to you and high cash flow can maybe make you offer that seller more money than they would get on the traditional market. They can go sell it on the MLS with realtors and this and that, and you know, they walk away with 10 grand in their pocket. You can tell them you'll give them 20 grand. Right. If you're gonna be making $2,000 a month cash flow, you know, you don't have anything, uh, no loan origination costs. It's not gonna be on your DTI, it's on theirs. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different scenarios where you can make this work for a seller where they're gonna be happy. You're telling them you're gonna be making their payment for them. You're gonna be improving their credit. It's gonna be reported for them. It's also possible for you to maybe allow them to qualify for another loan in the future. A lot of lenders will actually take a subject two off of the seller's DTI as long as you can show six months of payment by that buyer. So even though that seller, the loan is still in their name, they're saying, you know, I won't be able to qualify for another loan. You can tell them that that's not always true. Let's go talk to this mortgage officer. And I know plenty of them that will tell you, you know, we can qualify you for another loan as long as we show the paperwork from the subject two that we have and proof that six months of payments have been made. I might have to uh, take you up on that because I've had a couple sellers come to me about buying other property, which is why I do wraparounds for this reason. Um, so I might have to talk to you a little bit offline about how it's not guaranteed that every loan officer understands this because it's just like the investor world. A lot of the lenders don't understand it, but you can usually direct them to someone that does. And I know some that do. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to an agent or a seller that says so this is illegal? There's absolutely nothing illegal about it. There are plenty of IRS regulations with the government that show you know, how to treat taxes, for example, in a subject to closing. In a traditional closing, you have a document called a HUD that we're probably all familiar with. That actually has a line item on it for subject to closings. You know, it anticipates subject to closings being available. Back in the 70s, there was another situation kind of like what we're in right now with, you know, interest rates that were going through the roof. Right. So subject twos back then were really common. A lot of the old realtors, you know, they call it a wraparound, like you're saying. So some people call a subject to a wraparound for that, for that reason. But yeah, there's absolutely nothing illegal about it. A lot of people will start to scream about something that you'll hear called the do unfail clause. And the do and fail clause, there's nothing illegal about it. It's just a clause in a mortgage or deed of trust that states that when a seller sells a house, you're supposed to pay off Wells Fargo. So if you don't pay Wells Fargo and you sold your house, then you are violating the do and fail clause. So technically, Wells Fargo could come forward and try to collect the debt against you. You just bought someone's house subject to, you're taking over the payments, and you're worried that you know, Wells Fargo is going to come after you and you know, make you pay it all. In the history of the world, Wells Fargo has never done that, that I'm aware of. You know, they've likely already bundled that mortgage and sold it to 13 different hedge funds. And they couldn't foreclose and call the due on sale clause due, even if they wanted to. And I've actually had sellers on occasion, for whatever reason, some of them, no reason at all, call Wells Fargo after a subject to close and say, hey, go after that guy. I, I want you to go do on sale and get this out of my name. And Wells Fargo rolls their eyes at them and says, look, the payments are current. There's nothing we're going to do. Right. You know, they, they thoroughly ignore them. Right. So, so it's not illegal. Yeah. Short salary is subject to is not illegal for agents and sellers out there. Um, so how should, now let me back up. Why would a seller sell on subject to? Because that's probably what the thing I was thinking. I would never sell. I would never sell my house and leave the loan in my name and not own it. Why? Why would someone do that? That's a good question, and that's probably why and what people need to understand, so that when they see one of these situations, they know that they can maybe frame it in a way that makes subject to work. The most or the easiest or best way to find a subject to probate. Every day, people are dying. And their heirs don't care at all if you take over the mortgage on their parents' property. They, you know, they've passed away. There's no one to even collect that debt. 
so probate and estates and dead people, frankly, are, are a wonderful way of finding subject to that no one even cares about. So there, there are plenty of people down, I'm sure, at whatever state and court county that you live in looking for probate deals to find subject to right now. You know, that, that's a gold mine where the sellers are thrilled to sell you however you want the house. Right. For them, it's just, you know, how easily they, can they sell it and how much money are they going to walk away with? In a lot of states, probate can take a couple of years too. So they're going to be saddled with making the mortgage payments on these properties for two or three years sometimes before they can sell it the legal way with a realtor and title insurance and all that. You can sell it subject to immediately. And then when probate is later done or fixed or corrected or the statute of limitations passes, then title becomes good at that point as well. So dead people is the number one. Number two, sometimes older people. A lot of older people, they have a large property that is a lot to maintain for them too much maybe. And they make the decision that they're gonna downsize. You know, they're gonna to go to a condo or townhome or living assisted, you know, something like that. So they don't care if you take over the mortgage payments. Again, they're wanting more money you know, to walk away and uh, get out of that. So a lot of people don't care if they're ever gonna qualify again going forward. All that aside, people that are in financial distress, which is you know, a big world, it's always going to be a big world. A lot of the times people are gonna be underwater in a property and there's no way to sell that property without a short sale unless they do subject to. Um, so it works for them too. There's normal people that would just do subject to if they get more money at the closing than they otherwise would. You know, you can eliminate realtor fees and a lot of different closing costs by doing subject to. On a two or $300,000 property, that can easily be, you know, 20 or $30,000. If they don't have a ton of equity, that $30,000 can be everything to them. You know, if they're only gonna walk away with five grand the regular way and you're offering them 15 grand, uh, to walk away subject to, that's another reason that they may choose you. Um, yeah, one thing, one thing which I've been asked a lot, I had a phone call the other day with an investor asking me about how, how to go about subject to and things. And, you know, we're looking for problems to solve. We're not trying to shove a problem down someone's throat. You can't force a transaction like this. What I would say is if you've got a seller that is or you think down the line is going to be a headache or a pain and you're kind of forcing it down the throat or not fully being ethical about the transaction, not telling them exactly what's going on so they fully understand what the transaction is, then you should probably stay away from the transaction. Yeah, I think it's really important. I, I teach the realtors that be ethical about it and be upfront and complete and full disclosure. Because yeah, if you know, if they're telling you they're going to try to go buy another house in two months, that's not going to work. If they're trying to buy it in two years, don't promise them anything, but that can maybe work. You know, go talk to a mortgage officer, put the situation before them. But yeah, everything needs to be full disclosure, be ethical about it, explain the different situations. There are many situations out there where this actually will fit and is a better thing for the seller. You don't have to force it. And if you're forcing it, it could likely give you a headache in the future. Right. Um, but now that you understand all these different things, you, you're going to start to see these popping up. You didn't even know was a good subject to a lot of the people laugh, you know, like, ah, there's not much equity there. That's the ones that subject to people love. Like they want to go find everyone that is, you know, no equity. People laugh like, ah, 300 days on the market. I'm not going to even look at that property for sale. Well, they're subject to investors out there. That's the ones they're looking for because they know it's been on the market for 300 days. They figure there's probably not a lot of equity there. That's the seller you approach with a subject to offer. They probably can't drop their house anymore because they already have. For whatever reason, they're not walking away and closing that. You know, they're going to be incentivized and be happy that you approach them with a subject to possibility. And it's possible to do it through an agent as well. There was actually, this was probably my most recent close with you was, you know, an agent came to me and basically gave me the situation. I explained subject to to them. The only difference was that I had to come up with the commission. It didn't come from the sales price. So there's three things from my understanding, there's three things that agents go for commission, commission, and commission. So long as that I've got them covered and do a fast, easy, simple, hassle-free transaction. The sellers are happy, they're happy, uh, and, and it worked out. So the other thing is a benefit. I think we closed that in seven to 14 days. 
So it's not only, you know, a benefit in terms of financial for the seller, but it also can be a seven day closing. Yeah. Be really fast. So let, let's shift gears from that's the benefits, the positives. What can go wrong? What have you seen? Hypothetically. One more thing I forgot to mention, a lot of times property condition, like you were saying, if a reason for subject to something as simple as not having floor coverings in your house, linoleum or whatever disqualifies you for a BA loan, for example. Yeah. A lot of properties are simply in too bad a condition to qualify for a loan. So right. a lot of times they can't sell it on the open market unless they do something like subject to. Right. Right. So pitfalls, I mean, obviously, if you're buying from Wells Fargo, they're not going to care as long as the payments are made. But if the lender is a private individual, like your neighbor or something, they're going to know what's going to happen or what has happened. And that is a situation where the neighbor could do the due on sale clause. They could say, look, I want my loan paid off because I know you sold this house, the seller moved out. You know, so you've got to be halfway reasonable with your expectations about what you can do subject to. For example, you know, if the neighbor is the lender or a small town little bank, or some kind of small investment group, they're going to be watching this stuff and have the ability to actually do that doing sale clause. Something like Nation Star Mortgage, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, any of the big banks, I have absolutely no problem doing subject to on. There are one or two little banks in North Carolina that I know, Park Sterling, for example, State Employees Credit Union, they might actually come after you for doing subject to. So again, it just comes back to experience, finding an attorney that knows what they're doing with subject to in that area so that they be able to tell you which banks to do that with, which banks not to do that with. Um, what would be your options if the do on sale clause did get you know, accelerated, the loan got accelerated? What, what would good. be your options from that point? It's good to illustrate. I mean, at any time, you can pay it off. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is they say, we want to do this do on sale clause, and you pay them to go away. Uh, you pay whatever the loan is. So most people want to be halfway reasonable on their purchase price. They're investors. They're hoping at worst, if it was called, I've got so much equity in the house at that point after years making the payments or whatever that I'm okay. Uh, I've never actually, I've never had a major bank call one due. Uh, so I, it's never been an issue, but I have had smaller banks do it on occasion if the borrower is really up in arms about it, like a VA bank or you know, the military or something like that, you know, they're pretty close with their people and they can give you a headache and come after you if you've given them reason to do that. I've also had VA banks say that they're not gonna do anything as well, but you know, there's enough of a risk for an investor in a small bank or something like that, that they need to be paying attention and have an upside. You, know, you don't wanna buy something $50,000 underwater and well, put a ton of you know, renovation money into it. What would the liability be on me then if the do and sale clause got pushed and I'm like, there's nothing I can do? Nothing. I mean, yeah, the, the promissory note was signed by the previous owner. It's not signed by you. You have no personal obligation. You could walk away. Now, I wouldn't say just walk away and abandon the property. Sure. Some people, if they end up not wanting a property after they bought it, which happens, you know, for whatever reason, they decide the investment's a bad deal. They deed and lieu or just deed it back to the original owner who takes it over. And we've had that happen occasionally or, or where an owner for whatever reason wants to buy the property back from the investor. Yeah, you can, you can always just deed it right back to them. But yeah. for you, there is no personal liability on that debt. They can foreclose and take it from you if you don't make the payments, but that's not a judgment or foreclosure against you. It's against the original owner. So I want to give a quick story about an investor. This might've been a couple years ago. It's public information now. So I'm, I'm good to talk about it. Um, this is why, let me preface this with, with my mentor who has done six to 700 houses in Wilmington. You've probably worked with him in the, in the past. Harry. He mostly does lease options though. Um, we were talking about an investor that was doing tabletop closings. And I was talking to him about that. And he said, this is exactly why you always want to close with an attorney. I said, I'm good. I got Harry, I'm all set. This is like I showed him kind of paperwork and things like that. Like we're all good. But this investor in North Carolina has probably been doing it for you know decades. Um, he would do tabletop closings. So he had something like 30 or 40 subject to closings that he would have the seller sign over the deed there and then and do all the paperwork, just him and the seller. 
what came down the line in a couple of years was a lot of these sellers kicked up a fuss, went to the attorney general, and he ended up getting sued for everything. He had to either refinance, sell, or deed back the property. He had to pay for all the fees. It was something like a $200,000 judgment on top of that. He was no longer allowed to buy in an LLC or a land trust. He had to use all the standard realtor contracts now moving forward. And obviously he's got a massive judgment against him. So the story, long story short is he was doing one of two things. One wasn't disclosing exactly what the transaction is. So they didn't know what they were getting into. And two, um, probably not using the proper paperwork by going through an attorney. Yeah, to some degree, the attorney is the person you blame if things are wrong. Yeah, that's the value to an attorney. You can show legitimacy that it took a few moments for the seller to realize what they're doing. They had a professional they could ask questions to. Uh, you know, the attorneys who you blame if they lie later. And we've, you know, sellers and people lie. I know who you're talking about, that case in Raleigh. Yeah. And yeah, I, I don't want to scare people away from subject to it. He was doing a lot of bad things. He was going to their house and getting them to sign over the deed to their house and promising that they could buy it back from him in the future or you know things like that and then his goal with little old ladies basically is that yeah you can buy it back from me for market rent where they're you know they're they were used to paying their 800 mortgage per month and in raleigh you know the rental value was 2500 he knew basically they would default at 2500 you know if they can't pay the 800 they're not paying 2500 and they need a victim exactly and then he ends up buying their house for really cheap that he had promised to pay off or give back to them if they made the payments. But uh, he did. And I've got a lot of other stories about him and why he got in trouble with doing that. Uh, so that's not the situation you guys should be living at or thinking about. He was also doing land trust, like you mentioned. There's nothing wrong with a land trust. But he was making every land trust look like it was owned by that original seller. So he'd make the land trust be named something like the Johnson Family Land Trust. <laughs> so yeah, but he's the owner of the Johnson Family Land Trust, but everyone else is thinking that the original owner put all that stuff as like estate planning or something, which is entirely legal and fine. But he was lying to lenders about that too and saying, you know, that they owned it. And he was also trying to do loan modifications for them and things. So backing up and going to what you were talking about, what not to do and the number one rule of subject two basically is don't let an original homeowner stay in the property. And that's back to being ethical. You know, you don't want to have some kind of situation where you're agreeing to resell them the house. They're in a desperate situation, possibly. It could be in foreclosure or they can't afford their debts or whatever. You need to be upfront with them that you are a real estate investor doing this for profit. You're gonna get them out, uh, they're gonna leave. This has to be something beneficial for them and for you. If you do not get the original homeowner out, and people do that plenty of times after me telling them not to do it. It's yeah. very possible that when you try to evict them later, they go to a judge and explain the situation and blame you for every evil in the world and say you're this evil guy, you know, that was trying to kick me out of the house that I own and still owe the debt on. And that's what would happen with that Riley guy who's been sued by the attorney, attorney general. So as long as you abide by rule number one and not let an owner stay in a house, you won't have to worry about any of those things or you shouldn't have to. Right. And uh, there was a deal. This was a while ago now. I don't remember the exact details, but I was like, this is like a screaming deal. There's equity in it. There's cash flow. Don't really necessarily have to give the seller too much at closing. The only caveat was because everything that I'm buying is typically vacant or non owner occupied. It might already have a renter in there, which is fine. But this one, it was the owner. And he was adamant that the only way he would sell it is if he could stay and rent it back from me. So I was like, this is screaming deal. I'm, I was so close to going ahead and doing it. I spoke with you a few times and I took ultimately took your advice. And then I thought about a commercial guy on Long Island that I get advised from. And he said, there's always more units. There's always more deals. So sometimes you have to walk away from a good deal to make sure that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. There's a local, I, I've got stories for Dave, but there's a local mentor that knew that he shouldn't let someone stay in it, but he making it, made an exception and did a closing through us actually. Uh, and I'm telling him, get her out, get her out. And he didn't do it. 
long story short, I get a phone call from the police the next day where she'd file police reports against him saying, someone stole my house, you know, they forged a deed, they did all, and, you know, I had to talk to the police, like, look, I met this seller yesterday in my office, she signed everything, she knew what she was doing, but even in that situation, that person went to legal aid, they went to the attorney general, they put so much pressure on the investor, who had also paid her 20 grand as well, that the investor paid her another $10,000 on top of the 20 grand they'd just given her just to leave them alone so that they weren't investigated by 43 other bureaus and you know, all that kind of stuff. So people do do that and leave the homeowner in a property, but you'll get one bad one and it'll be so bad that you know, you'll learn that lesson never again. It could easily cost you 30 or $40,000 in litigation fees. And in addition to them living in the house for free at that point, you know, you're maybe making the payment for them trying to preserve your equity and they have every incentive to make your life difficult so that they can live in there for as long as possible before you can get them out. So yeah, number one rule, never do that when someone is gonna live in the property or if you're gonna do it, realize that it could go really poorly. Yeah, I think what they say, they say, they say buyers are liars, but sellers are worse. So <laughs> yeah. What's bankruptcy that? is another possibility that's a headache. If you know they're gonna file bankruptcy, you don't do a subject to. There's actually a six month look back period in the bankruptcy court whenever someone files bankruptcy, they're gonna ask them, what properties have you sold in the last six months? And it is actually the possible outcome that a trustee, that's the person in charge of a bankruptcy, can come after you and take the property back. Now, they're only going to do that if there's equity or something in the property and they think that they can sell it for more money than they sold it to you for. Uh, so it's not a huge risk. I've actually never seen it happen where a trustee comes and tries to take a subject to property sold back into the estate, the bankruptcy estate, so they could sell it for more money. And I've seen that situation probably 15 times where you know you didn't know that the seller or they lied and filed bankruptcy two days after your sub two closing i've had that happen at least 15 times and the trustee just looks at it and says okay you know this is a legitimate transaction i i have no problem with it so i don't want to tell people to do a subject two when you know that's going to happen because it could be a headache but i ideally it isn't yeah yeah so shifting gears a little bit between subject two and we touched on it a little bit a wraparound What's, what's the difference between the two? What's the benefits and what are the cons? Most of the time I call subject two and wraparound the same. I think some people have a distinction with wraparound. Wraparound, when you do a subject two closing, there's a promissory note, a debt that you promise to pay on their behalf. For you as the buyer, you actually sign a promissory note stating that you're gonna make the payments for them. And that's the wraparound. You're wrapping around their debt obligation and you're telling them that I'm going to pay it for you. And you do that because you want things to be equitable. You want consideration for a contract. You want tit for tat. Yeah? You give up something, they give up something. And again, that guy in Raleigh that is in trouble for this did not do any of that. He had just an open-ended agreement where he could walk away at any time, not make the payments. And he did that on a couple. You know, purposely putting the sellers in a bad situation. I think a couple of the houses he even stripped took things out of the house and like, you know, destroyed them to make money. Yeah, you know, another obviously bad thing. But it, if you're doing things properly at a real estate attorney's office, you'll do a wrap around promissory note where you promise to make the payments on their behalf. So if you don't make the payments, that seller can come after you and get the house back from you. So that makes things legal. That, that makes um, consideration where if you don't make the payments, the seller isn't up the creek. They can actually come get the house back. And without that, a judge can say that this is an inequitable situation. They can try to unwind the entire situation if a seller began coming after you and trying to, you know, for whatever reason, get the house back or something. So again, back to proper paperwork, uh, do things in an attorney's office, do things equitably, uh, make sure that it works for both people. But that's what the wraparound obligation is. It's you wrapping around their debt, agreeing to make it for them. Some people will say a subject two doesn't have that. It's just completely subject to, you know, you're not doing any of that. I, I wouldn't recommend doing that. Um, again, at worst, if you don't want to make the payments, you just say, here's the property back. You, know, you don't want to ever abandon it and leave a seller intentionally to be harmed by a situation. You'd give them that property back in a deed. Yeah, I do a wraparound on all of them. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is, if I'm not willing to do a wraparound, it's probably not a good enough deal anyway. 
So I'm probably going into it with bad intentions. Two is obviously to protect the sellers and let them know that, you know, if I don't make a payment, this always comes up in the conversations. It's, well, what happens if you don't make a payment? And I say, well, let's run down this scenario. For one, we're a for-profit business and I'm not planning on giving you, you know, ten, twenty thousand $20,000 at closing to not make the payments. And let's say another 10,000 in rehab to not make the payments for then you to take the home back from me. And that's all properly papered. So then I'd go down the conversation. I'd say, well, what if today I give you a scratch off for $30,000 and you still own the home? Would you do that deal? And I'll say, oh yeah, I'd take a $30,000 scratch off today and own the home. I'd be like, okay, great. So let's go ahead. Let's do this. Let's move to the next step. Yeah, so, yeah that's the most common question by far. You know, what yeah. happens if you don't make the payments? And I say the same thing. This is an investor. They're wanting to make money. They're going to make your payments, especially after they give you money fix it up. They've got a renter in there. You know, the last thing that you have to worry about is them not making the payment. Right. Right. And then the third thing, does that help with their DTI as well? So if they, they went to go buy something else, I could show this wraparound and show the proof of the payments Would that strengthen the case. Yes. Okay. And that's what happens, which we have to do honestly quite a bit these days, since we've done so many subject to closings in the past, we get lenders coming to us all the time saying we need a copy of all the paperwork. We need proof that the payments are being made by the buyer. We need the following different things. So we'd have to reach out to a buyer pretty often and say, hey, we need to see your bank accounts where these payments are coming out. We need a new copy of a mortgage statement to show they've been made. Uh, yeah, whatever the lender's requirements are, which are the lender requirements and every lender can be different. We are willing to help them and jump through those hoops so that we can try to get them qualified for another loan. And I don't think that someone that has ever actually really tried to get a loan has ever been denied that I know of that's waited at least six months. We have had people turn around two months into it and then find out that they needed to wait four more months before they get another loan. That's not catastrophic. Um, no. So one, another way to frame it is everything that I've done has been a mirror wraparound. I haven't got super creative in other ways, but a mirror wraparound essentially is the seller has a loan, say of $100,000 with 800 a month payments. I, and that, that's an agreement between the seller and the bank. I'm making an agreement between me and the seller saying, I'm getting a $100,000 loan from you. I'm going to make $800 payments to the seller and the seller makes that $800 payment to the bank. The only difference is I don't make that payment to the seller. I make the payment directly to the bank. That's the only difference. Yep. Does that sound about right? Is that a good way to summarize it? Yeah. yeah. So just to circle back and reiterate this is... My mentor in North Carolina said, always, always, always close these transactions with an attorney like Harry right here. Um, and just to reiterate the point again, why is it so important to close with an attorney? Well, and back to your previous conversation real quick. Yeah, people do that mirror wrap all the time, but there are other people that do the sandwich wrap where they are wrapping at $800 a month and then they're selling that to someone else. And they're in the middle, you know, they're collecting the $1,200 from someone else to make the middle payment to someone else. You can get really complicated and get into different levels of, you know, doing these beyond the mirror wrap. You know it does what? become more complicated, but there are plenty of opportunities out there. I don't like getting, personally, this is just a personal decision. I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. I don't like getting that complicated. I like just doing a mirror wrap around cash at close in rented standard rental agreement. No lease option on the back end. I don't want to convolute it on the back end because yeah. if something bad happens on the front end, I can fix it easily here. Exactly. I hate the idea of you selling a subject to to someone else. They quit making payments. That seller looks at you thinking that you're supposed to be making the payments. It could go awry. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I try not to do that, but there's plenty of investors that make it their business model. So kind of what you're saying is, can you wholesale a subject to? Can you contract with a buy a seller as a exactly. subject to and then sell that contract to another yeah. investor? And we prefer to go to the seller and be full disclosure and say, here's what's going on. You know, the actual buyer is going to be this guy, just so that they know that if there is a problem in the future, who to contact rather than feeling like they were deceived or tricked or anything. One thing you said to me, which really stuck with me when I was doing this, because I had a subject too, is actually the one that needed too many repairs. It had like asbestos side in, rotting windows, some structural issues. And I was thinking about wholesaling it and I asked you, what, what do you think about wholesaling it? And you, you walked me down and it was a story, but 
you basically said whatever that wholesale fee is that say $10,000 wholesale fee, you're basically selling all the trust that those sellers have put into you and of making the payments. And, you know, it's not, I wouldn't take the transaction lightly that, you know, that they're giving their credit in your hands and you're selling their credit for $10,000 to someone that you might not know that might not do the right thing. Exactly. Yeah. Selling the trust for $10,000. Yep. Could, that, could that also come back to bite me as well as a wholesaler? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if someone is going to come after you and want to file a lawsuit against you, they're going to file against everyone that they possibly can. Uh, let's say you're in a buyer and goes and strips the house of all the copper, you know, just to make a few bucks and then leave it empty and in foreclosure. That original seller is probably going to sue you thinking that you are the buyer. It could go really poorly. So back again to being ethical and good about these and making it win-win for both parties. And there is an investor in Charlotte I know that does that. She yeah. loves buying these properties. And basically her story is to go strip it and take the cabinets out of it and make money that way. Yeah. And she's in trouble for doing that too. Okay. So that actually covers my question of why you should close with an attorney like Harry is because you've seen it all. You're doing hundreds of these transactions every single month. You know the bad, you know the good. You can offer your professional advice like you do with me, you know. You don't tell me to go one way or the other. You just say, this is what I've seen. This is what I know. Make your own decision ultimately. Yep. But the, the reoccurring theme I've heard is disclose, disclose, disclose. Yeah. And when we do a closing, there is an extra 20 pages of documents. There are uh, authorizations, powers of attorney. There's documents that literally say that the seller understands what is going on. So if they try to later say they didn't, you know, that you've got the attorney that's holding that document and knows what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's wrap this up. I appreciate your time, Harry. This is just going to be quick fire questions, short one word answer. Um, first one is best real estate book or resource other than yourself. I, I don't think people use the investor attorneys enough. So I would maybe fear myself because mentors, they're in different States. It doesn't really apply to where you're at. So maybe my answer would be to find your local investor group, whatever, you know, I'm sure whatever town you're in, there is one somewhere. Go down to the courthouse if you don't know who they are or where they meet. But in Charlotte, every little individual part of Charlotte has a different investor group. These are the people that know how to find deals. And a lot of the times they'll even teach you if you work for them for a little while. So yeah. find the local guys that are in your county and know what they're doing rather than someone in a different state. Yeah, to touch on that, the way that I found my mentor is it was actually my first ever subject too, and I was thinking of doing a lease option out. So I put it on, you know, Zillow, all the websites, his VA calls me from wherever I'm trying to reverse recruit the VA. And then ultimately, I, they say no, I end up speaking to him. And then, you know, a lot of times looking for a mentor, you can't just ask, will you be my mentor, you want to provide some sort of value. So I was helping him with different marketing strategies and campaigns, how I'm finding these deals because he was struggling with that. And then with that, that's how our relationship grew. So he's probably, plus you, Harry, probably saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars in mistakes, which is a good segue to the next question is biggest mistake, almost meaningful mistake in real estate, whether it's yours or what you've seen. Other than that investor in Raleigh who was doing all that shady. That's, that's a bad one. And leaving the homeowners in the property that every month that happens and we have to tell people, I told you so, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, you know, that's common. Biggest mistake, I think like you maybe said earlier, there are some deals that just don't fit well. And the more you try to make something into what it isn't, it could be the deal that, you know, the best deal that you've ever done in your life is probably one of the deals you didn't do or you didn't force to be done. Uh, if it's not fitting the mold, if it's not looking good for whatever reason or just doesn't smell bad to you, don't force something that shouldn't happen because it, more, than like, more than likely it will end up being something that is a bad deal. And great deals are great, you make money, but when you get a bad deal, it can be far outweighing many of your good deals. Yeah, don't try and fit a square peg in a circle hole. Yeah. Um, again, what areas do you serve, Harry? North and South Carolina, we can do- Statewide. Statewide. Yeah. And what paperwork, I know you mentioned, you said there's 20 extra pages <laughs> of, of documents. Sure. You won't touch on all of them, but broad yeah. In broad speaking terms, we, I have a one-page contract that I love that a lot of people use. We call it I a subject it. to one-page simple contract. 
But in addition to your contract, you always wanna get a copy of a mortgage statement on any sub two you're thinking about buying. And then we'll have an information sheet. Every attorney has an information sheet for the seller. But you always wanna get a copy of the mortgage statement to verify that they're telling you what is the truth. Uh, you wanna see the interest rate on there. You wanna see that they don't have a loan modification. You wanna see that that's not like a temporary deferral. Sometimes you'll see things like that where the interest rate's been lowered to 2% for six months, but it could go back up next month. Or maybe they've been deferred payment plan for six months and all those six months are due in another month. Uh, you need to get a copy of that mortgage statement as early as you can to confirm that they're not lying to you. Yeah. I wanna preface this last question with, whenever I contact Harry and speak to Harry, I always offer to say, look, Harry, I'm more than willing to pay for your time because it's valuable. Like he's doing hundreds of closings every single month. So time is valuable. So with this, how do people contact you or reach you or work with you? I appreciate that. The headache of accounting, I don't have time to bill people by the minute or by the call or any of that. So I don't bill anyone call me or email me at any time. I do try to answer email faster than anything. Uh, but uh, I can give you my cell phone number or email address, either one of them, I do answer. Cell phone 704-956-7498. And my email is harry at harrymarshlaw.com. You know, the way we make money is doing closings for you. So we wanna help you guys find as many of these to do. It's, uh, you know, it's a team to some degree. Any last touch points, anything that we missed that you think would be meaningful before we wrap up? Mm -hmm. There's so much more we could go into. This could be days long, you know. I liked what you said a few minutes ago about mentors and how you met yours. What I tell people to do is go to fight your local investor group and say, what can I do for you? What can I do to help you make your life better? What do you have a need for? You know, and some people's personalities are better. Some people are good on the phone, some are not. Some are door knockers. Some are the people that put signs in the medians around the you know, town. Whatever your strength is, is what you should be offering to some local investor group or mentor, and you can show value to them. If you show value to them, they will teach you, you know, how to get in this game and you can figure out your own little niche. Yeah. The best way to become a millionaire is help someone make a million dollars. Probably. You're learning it without the downside yourself, essentially. Yep. All right, Harry, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I need to speak with you offline about the, uh, um, what was it? getting the DTI out of the uh, stuff. So um, sure. if it's possible, so maybe we can talk about that, but thanks again. No problem. Appreciate yep. it. Thank you all. Harry Marshall, 24 hour title, North Carolina. Thank you, man.